Thanks so much for being with us. I'm Joy Lim Nacrin, joined here by Jamara Edward Ship, um, local attorney at law. Thank you so much for being with us, Jay. Thank you for having me. Thank and, you. And thanks for talking about what we're here to talk about today, which is the historic YSL trial. Um, historic for a number of reasons. So far, it's been the longest jury selection in state history for the young, alleged young slime life gang, what prosecutor describe as a gang and what defense attorneys describe as young stoner life record label. So it's also the largest RICO trial in state history because the Trump case has not begun yet. I mean, we're talking about 28 defendants who were initially charged and now down to young thug his actual name is Jeffrey Williams and five other defendants. So many, uh, most of the defendants have either pled out, had charges dismissed, cases severed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So big picture, Jay, what do our viewers really need to be watching out for when this trial begins the Monday after Thanksgiving, November 27th? They need to be looking out for the explosive uh, opening statements that are going to be done by the attorneys for Young Thug, who would be, I think, led by attorney Brian Steele. You're going to be looking at some explosive opening statements from Bruce Harvey and his uh, co-attorney, Lamar Gardner. All of these individuals are going to come and, you know, really lay into the state's case in their opening statements. The state has an expansive case before them. They're looking at acts that happened years ago. They're bringing in uh, over 500 witnesses on the witness list. They're looking at lyrics. They're looking at uh, phone records. They're looking at text messages. It's going to take a very calculated, very uh, carefully worded opening statement to get into the minds of the jurors to say that, hey, the state may have this supposed mountain of evidence. However, I'm going to systematically and uh, deliberately show you how all of this evidence is not what they say it really is. So that's the first thing that we should be looking for on uh, November the 27th. And a, a really key part of evidence and a controversial uh, kind of body of evidence that is being admitted in this trial Rap lyrics. Remember, you know, there were several pretrial motions con concerning rap lyrics and whether they should be admitted as evidence in this case. Of course, the, the prosecution has argued that these lyrics um, do show guilt, that they show evidence of, of crimes, including racketeering. And the defense has argued consistently, well, they're, they're lyrics, they're just forms of expression, you know, and, and that they are essentially free speech. They're a form of free speech that should be protected under, under the Constitution. You know, it should, it's not, it's not evidence. It's not evidence of crimes. It's evidence really of creativity if anything, or, or a persona. What, what is your take on Judge Glanville's decision to admit some of the rap lyrics as evidence? So the former prosecutor in me sees the reasoning behind why he admitted lyrics. Uh, higher courts, such as the 11th uh, Circuit's appellate court, has deemed that lyrics can be uh, brought in in a trial. However, I'm also looking at it from a defense attorney's uh, standpoint and saying, 
Okay, just because the lyrics are being brought in doesn't necessarily mean that this is an end-all, be-all. It is up to the defense attorneys to poke holes in what is admitted, and we most likely will see them objecting to these lyrics being admitted. Uh, Judge Glanville did, you know, say that in his order that, you know, the proper foundation has to be laid and they can still, you know, uh, have an objection for these lyrics be made at trial. Now, what I would like to see is the defense attorneys bring in other lyrics to just show how at times nonsensical, how creative, how uh, just out of the box some of these lyrics can be to show that to take these lyrics at their face value and say, this is exactly uh, what happened. This is the smoking gun to prove that these individuals did these certain things. I am interested to see how the defense attorneys will come in and just cut that down piece by piece to show that it is not what they are trying to make it seem. Okay, so if anybody's watching our podcast, then you you know on our website we have an extensive section on the YSL trial. We call it Young Thug Trial, and there's a section. There's a whole story called "Here Are the Rap Lyrics That Will Come Up in Young Thug's Trial," and you can see all these lyrics. But I have some of them on the screen right now. You know, we talked about this previously before we got on this podcast, podcast, Jay, but. What do you think of these lyrics that I'm showing on the screen, like, at this very moment? So, let's start out with, uh, I got bodies on bodies on bodies. All right. Do I believe that this young individual, uh, Yak Gotti, has bodies on bodies on bodies? Of course not. It's just a term that young, especially young black men, use to portray themselves as tough because... These are guys who have come from rough backgrounds. These are guys who have come from places where being viewed as soft in quotation marks is a negative thing. So they are doing whatever they can to show that they are not an easy mark. They are not an easy target if they are out in the streets, uh, you know, whether it be with fans, whether it be just going to go out to eat or whatever. They do not want to be seen by nefarious individuals as somebody who they can easily rob, extort, whatever. So this statement, I got bodies on bodies, I think it should be taken with a grain of salt. You shouldn't take it as it at its face value. And to do that, the state is now setting up a trap for themselves, whereas many other lyrics that have absolutely no meaning but use you know uh standard words can be said okay so if a person says you know i'm uh, standing on top of linux are they actually standing on top of the linux mall of course not so it's it's a bad thing for the state to go down this road but this is what they think that they will be able to use to persuade jurors to say, okay, well, yeah, these are bad guys. They are talking about these things in their reps. And I don't think it's going to pan out like they think it will. And here, and here's the thing, you know, when we're talking about some of these lyrics, like I got bodies on bodies, you know, that I could see the argument for Mm -hmm. admitting, 
I have trouble with, for instance, this next lyric that we see on our screen right now. I shot, I shot it as mommy. Now he no longer mentioned me. I mean, I, I have questions about how that would be considered evidence of a crime because it sounds like, um, I was hitting, I was trying to like, you know, hit on your mom or, you know what I mean? Like make a, right. make a pass at her. Right. So it has to me, maybe a, even a sexual connotation, nothing to do with, with an actual gun or shooting. So I, I struggled with how the argument could be made that that's evidence of shooting somebody. Right. There's this whole concept of shooter's going to shoot, shoot your shot, things right. of that nature. So, right. you know, I took a shot at your mom. Or I <laughs> shot at your mom. <laughs> I mean, yes, it is intimidating yeah. to say, hey, I flirted with your mom. But yeah. kids have been saying this for years, you know. Yeah. Um, I remember when I was an adolescent, you know, that was one of the go-to <laughs> things. Yeah, your mom was cute or whatever. <laughs> right, 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 like, right. That no. type of thing. So, yes. again, by saying, okay, yeah, he shot at his mommy, unless they can bring somebody in to say, hey, I was shot at on this date, I think it's a reach. It is a big reach. And, again, the state is setting themselves up for a high burden that they have to prove to say that these lyrics – actually coincide with real events like i'm looking at this lyric i'm at the top bro head honcho i mean so i've heard people say you know i i probably hear people in my workplace say something similar because like they feel they feel they're a boss you mm -hmm. know what i mean it, it, not like a gang leader you right. know so right. i struggle with the the argument for admissibility of this as evidence yeah. But do you think the jury's going to struggle with making the connection there that this is evidence of gang activity? Again, um, you have all of these words that can be tied to other statements in the American vernacular, such as girl boss. Right. Like, we hear this all the time. Mm -hmm. But do we think that these uh, young women are, you know, heads of. Uh, <laughs> Cosa Nostra or anything like right. that. No, of course not. <laughs> we we have enough common sense to know that. So why is it that these particular individuals are being targeted and singled out for their statements saying that because they say that they are a boss, then that must be the smoking gun to say that this person is a boss of a gang or is a capo of a gang or anything like that. Right. It, it's a stretch. Well, and then I'm looking at another one of the um, lyrics that has has been admitted. I rep my life for real for slimes, you know, I kill. I mean, people say, you know, I, I would kill for those for those shoes. I would kill for, you know, that opportunity, whatever. I, I don't think people usually mean they would kill somebody. You know, when no. they say those things, it's it's a. It's an expression. It's an idiom, right? It's, right. It, it makes me think about how there are some uh, people who say, you know, my generation and the generation who's most likely prosecuting this came from the participation trophy uh, generation where you couldn't <laughs> say certain things because, you know, it was a zero tolerance policy. Mm -hmm. And I think that is actually starting to manifest itself in how they are prosecuting these cases. Um, wow. My, my father, he's of the greatest generation. He's 80 years old. And he often would say, you know, they would tell each other as kids, oh, boy, I'll kill you if you mess with me or whatever, knowing that they weren't going to do anything like that. But they would, you know, fight or defend themselves or whatever. And now you have a generation who 
has been brought up on this zero tolerance policy of words and actions and things. Whereas if you say, oh, I'm going to kill you, then the nuance and the context is taken out and everybody's saying, oh, well, they must mean it literally. He's going to kill someone for his slimes. <laughs> what? <laughs> That's, again, a stretch. It's a big stretch. And I hate to see it being done to these young men, um, especially because their vernacular is something that is normal to many other uh, black men who are being prosecuted for other crimes. So by allowing these statements to be brought in as party opponent admissions or as, you know, just uh, confessions, what have you, it sets a dangerous precedent of will a person's uh, slang be used against them? And as we all know, slang can change from year to year. What we may be able to say this year may be a crime next year. Uh, if we go down this slippery slope and it, it's, it's a dangerous road to travel. Mm, yeah. Very, yeah. Very, very interesting point. And so my question is then, do you think my next question is, do you think this is going to change? This trial is going to change rap. Is it going to change um, artistic expression? Is it going to create kind of a little bit of fear in artists about what kind of lyrics they're going to put out? So, not to call myself a hip hop aficionado or anything, but <laughs> uh, let me change. Let me change your name, superhero. Just give me a second. <laughs> so you know, um, this has been an ongoing theme for decades. Um, you had Calvin Butts, who was famously said, "I'm not against those uh, rappers. I'm not against uh, you know those who rap." I am against those thugs, but you had a group called Bone Thugs and Harmony. Were they a real group of thugs? They're giving something to their audience who historically have not had a voice, who have always felt, you know, pressured to talk about the social ills that they're living through one way or another. And this became their voice. And now we're seeing how it's being weaponized um, against them. Do I think that it's going to change rap? Well, it depends on if a guilty verdict is found. I believe if a guilty verdict is found, then you may see uh, rappers and the industry may say, okay, well, you know, this is bad for business. We don't want to have to deal with any investigation. Let's kind of change our lyrics. And even in some of the artists that I listen to now, there are certain statements that they won't make on their records. Uh -huh. They will just change the language. And while I appreciate it as an old person now, because I am old uh, by rap standards, it's kind of like, wow, the whole uh, atmosphere is being changed off of this um, one little thing being brought in. It's interesting, though, because that, you know, you talk about just the different characters who are going to be part of this trial, different, you know, you've got high profile um Defendants, including Yak Gotti, who mm -hmm. we had quote an obviously young thug, who you know that the bodies on bodies lyric is attributed to Yak Gotti, mm -hmm. but in a way, it's do you see rap music as kind of a a character in the trial in a way? So, I believe the question that you asked was, do I see rap music on trial as well? And I I would agree. What we're seeing is Atlanta rap being put on trial. What 
a lot of people don't want to admit, just like they don't want to admit about wrestling, is that a lot of this is fake. This is not these people's actual personas. This is just a character that they put did, on. Did you say about wrestling? Yes. Oh, that's I a mean, great analogy. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you, you saw how, you know, uh, mankind fell from the, <laughs> the cage and, you know, yes. these Hell in a Cell matches. And it's like, okay, well, do we actually believe that, um, you know, he and The Undertaker had these uh, long-standing beefs? Of course not. They were co-workers. And I think that the line is being blurred between whether or not these rappers are just characters or mm. caricatures of the people that they saw growing up versus is Young Thug an actual uh, crime boss. And I don't believe that a jury will be able to make that connection and say that Young Thug, Jeffrey Williams, is an actual crime boss because, again, that's just his persona. Um you don't see many crime bosses walking around in pink bandanas and driving uh, pink Lamborghinis or things like that. So, again, it's a persona. And to put these lyrics uh, in the evidence is basically trying to convict him based on statements that he made while he was in character. Mm, while he was in character. Okay, that's very interesting. So essentially, like wrestling or even like in the movies, you know, it, how actors will play a bad guy. Right. Um, right. Yeah, very interesting. And, and I don't know much about gaming, but I guess, you know, that, that that's kind of the same principle is that people will play act, you know, violent crimes, shooting right. and killing and so forth. Right. Um, we don't have Joe Pesci on uh, trial for being uh, in Casino or Goodfellas or anything. Well, he didn't make it out of Goodfellas. But either way, we don't have him on trial for his, uh, you know, the character that he plays. We don't have Robert De Niro on trial for, you know, um, trying to rob a bank. We don't have all of these different characters in which these people have played. We don't have them on trial. So why are we saying that these rappers who are playing a part by giving the audience the listeners um kind of that vicarious life that they live through when they listen to these songs why are we prosecuting them for this it's a great question and you know many people argue that um this is really about this is about free speech it's about first amendment that is and it's really a, a key part of this trial and you know i want to point out that u.s rep hank johnson a democrat um from mm -hmm. Metro Atlanta's 4th District has said, here's a direct quote, black history is under attack, black culture is under attack, rap music is under attack. And he introduced another bill uh, in Congress that would basically protect artists from having their lyrics used against them in court in cases like this. Um, first of all, what do you what do you think of, of that argument? I think that it's an argument that can be made. And the reason I think that it may fall flat in some instances is because a lot of people say, okay, well, they're not prosecuting them for saying these things. They're prosecuting them for the supposed acts that happen mm -hmm. that coincide with these things. However, I see the argument that can be made again, when lyrics are brought in, are we going to start looking at these lyrics as 
the smoking gun for a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. Delphonics, they had a song called Me and Mrs. Jones. It's about uh, having an affair with a married woman by the mm-hmm. name of Miss Jones, Mrs. Jones. Are we now going to retroactively try to prosecute the Delphonics for adultery in the state of Georgia because they had an affair with this married woman? You know, it is an attack on what seems like uh, only black music. And I think that that is going to be a rallying cry, um, not only for uh, senators and representatives that try to uh, run for reelection, but again, it's going to be one of those things where people say, okay, we understand that we want to curtail the crime in the city. We understand that everybody wants to feel safe, but are we going to attack an art form and say that this is the reason that people um, aren't safe? Uh, This rap is the reason that people aren't safe. Yeah. I mean, and, and here's the thing is that I see the argument music, many genres of music, contains violent lyrics mm-hmm. many genres of music you know i'm th- I even thinking of this Soundgarden song i think it's called uh burden in my hand that details this whole basically murder of the spouse mm-hmm. of a of the lover you know what i mean mm-hmm. and and it, it's almost like a confession of a murder i'm pretty sure that chris cornell did not kill any <laughs> right you know ex-lover i don't if if so was never prosecuted so when mr johnson representative johnson says black culture is under attack rap music is under attack do you think that he is referring to unequal prosecution of i guess lyrics that contain violence in other words you know lots of lyrics contain violence in lots of genres of music but it's rap music in particular which is is dominated by black artists that is you know is under scrutiny here at this trial. I think it lends into the idea that there is a certain demographic who has historically been over-policed, and this is just an addition to it. As I stated earlier, you have Carrie Underwood songs about property damage. Mm -hmm. You have uh, Johnny Cash songs about murder, uh, Mm -hmm. aggravated assault. You have a whole genre of country music called the murder ballad. But I was not aware of that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So deep diving. So, you know, you have all of these different examples of other cultures uh, having violent lyrics, Mm -hmm. but they aren't being prosecuted. And some may say, well, they're not doing any crimes. These guys are obviously uh, lawbreakers, et cetera, et cetera. But again, in the United States, everyone is uh, given the benefit of being innocent until proven guilty. And again, when you have a certain demographic that has been over-policed, I think it might be a Japanese proverb. The nail that sticks out gets hammered first. Mm. So if these guys are sticking out, they are, you know, supposedly making millions of dollars. They are, you know, always in the limelight. Of course, there is going to be more scrutiny on them. And if there is a group of prosecutors, not saying this is uh, Fulton County's, MO or anything like that. But if there was a group of prosecutors who didn't like that these particular individuals were getting this limelight or they're getting this attention, 
they could most likely find something. I, I want to ask you something, though, because this is an imp element, because we are talking about a racial element to this prosecution. Mm -hmm. We have a, a black male judge, the Honorable. I'm going to teach you how to say Glenville. the Honorable, the Honorable Judge Glanville. The Honorable Judge Glanville, that's right. Thank you for correcting me. I, I tripped over that. And you have a, a black female prosecutor, Fonnie Willis. Yes. Nevertheless, does that mean that they're, they're that you know that there can't be some sort of institutional racism or racial undertones i think and uh i'm very careful when i say all this because this is in no way um near close to slavery no way that's full stop but one thing that we have to keep in mind is that during slavery there were black overseers there were black slave catchers there were uh, black slave owners. Did that mean at that time that slavery wasn't racist? Of course not. Mm -hmm. So one can be a part of the system mm -hmm. and unconsciously uh, contribute to a institutional system of racism. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure that none of the prosecutors of uh, the Honorable Fonnie Willis, the Honorable Judge Glanville, I'm sure that neither one of them would ever in any inkling uh, be considered racist. But the actions in which we take a look at these statements by these young black men and attribute it to it actually being um, some type of violent conduct mm -hmm. It, it it's not looking at the bigger picture of all of this, and you know that's tragic. But hey, that's where we are here now. <laughs> mm, I appreciate your perspective on that. Appreciate your perspective on it. So, in terms of the the nuts and bolts of this trial itself, um, you know, opening statements set to begin the Monday after Thanksgiving, November 27th. And then the way that, you know, that the trial goes is then you're going to, uh, obviously you have the opening statements. And then the prosecution lays out their case, calls up all their witnesses, questions them on direct examination. And the other side, you know, has cross-examination. Then they have redirect. I don't know. Is there a re, is there a recross here in the state of Georgia? Yes, there is. Okay. Mm -hmm. And after that, is there... Is that it? Yeah, that, that's pretty much it. I mean, you can have the recross, and then they can try to redirect, and then usually the judge will, you know, keep it from going, turn mm -hmm. into an endless loop. Yeah. But yeah. So, but uh, but basically, the each side questions right. these witnesses. So this is all within the state case, and then the defense has their case where they call up their witnesses. Same thing. Mm -hmm. um, and then I believe there's also a rebuttal case in the state of Georgia where the state gets to go again and call their witness, some of their witnesses back or new witnesses they didn't call the first time around. Right, especially. If there is some testimony that um, doesn't coincide or doesn't click with what they said earlier, they can recall that witness and say, OK, hey, I want to recall this person to clarify X, Y, Z or, you know, just get this person back on the stand under oath to ask them again about something. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that is uh, applicable in the state of Georgia. So so after the opening statements, then the state's case, then the defense case. Then you got closing arguments. Then it goes to the jury. So it's a very, very long process. We saw that it took 10 months just to seat a jury. It's the longest mm -hmm. jury selection in state.
state history. Mm -hmm. That's just to select a jury. Right. So how long do we think the actual case is going to take, the trial? Uh, that's going to be a great question. Um, realistically, if they were, all things being equal, if they were to use all of their witnesses, which I think is seven-something for the state, it would take them, uh, or they would have to direct 13, or they would have to direct and cross-examine, redirect 13 witnesses a week. That, that's that's hard. That's wow. impossible feat almost. Yeah. So to think that it can be done in 52 weeks, which is a year, uh, I don't think we're going to see that. Um, we most likely may see this go well into 2025 um, if they have all the witnesses um, that come in. So, again, you know, I don't think that this is going to be one of those cases where we get this done in six months. No, this could very well last for a long, long time. Well, let's not forget we have another big case coming to the Fulton County Courthouse concerning the former president, Donald Trump, right. and his co-defendants. So is that going to kind of expedite things? I These are not being seen by the same judge, so most likely not. No. Um, it may be logistical uh, nightmares to try and get yeah. into the courthouse, and I'm not looking forward to that. Mm -hmm. But I don't think one case is going to have any bearing on another. But as far as the layperson who is trying to get in to maybe get a uh, document from the clerk's office or anything like that, they may run into heightened security measures, uh, things like that, because – I mean, being realistic, uh, what we're seeing now, we may see somebody try to disrupt the YSL trial. We may somebody, see somebody who may Maybe try like to just a member of the public. Yeah, just a member of the public. Just try to disrupt the trial or, you know, uh, try to slow it down or whatever. You know, you may have that super fan out there that feels like they have to do what they can to try and help uh, Young Thug. So we never know what we may see. We've seen it happen. Pre former President Trump. So. To think that it's out of the realm of possibility uh, for Young Thug, who is one of the rap greats of the city of Atlanta, uh, I don't think that it will happen. Any any final thoughts you want to share about this case? This is really a case about, again, black culture, black art, and it is going to be interesting to see how it changes black art, black culture, black rap. Historically, rappers have always spoken in codes um, to try to get their point across to the intended audiences, those who are in the inner city, um, who listen to this and allow the music to resonate with them. And an attack on that is detrimental to the culture, is detrimental to the art, um, in a sense, you are censoring the artists that are, you know, producing this material by saying you are liable for any actions that may come as a result of this. Back in, I believe it was 93, um, a defense attorney used Tupac's lyrics to say that it, it was the reason his client shot the police. And... Then we started seeing uh, police unions lobby for uh, Tupac to be dropped from his label to mm. censor lyrics and say, you know, we don't want um, any lyrics about 
shooting cops, whether it be justified, unjustified, whatever. We don't want any of that uh, brought in. And, of course, labels uh, decided to go along with that and say, okay, well, yeah, uh, that would be bad for business if you guys boycott us. I believe they ended up boycotting uh Six Flags, and this may I may be tying this in with Ice T, but again, there are various artists who have always used their music as a medium to get out a message against mm-hmm. police brutality. Um, speaking about what they're going through in their everyday lives in the slums, the ghetto, the inner city. So to put these people on trial and say, okay, well, this is the end-all be-all. This is the smoking gun to prove that these people are dangerous and they do these dangerous things that they portray in their lyrics. Even though this person is just a persona, it's dangerous, it's detrimental, and it's a road that I'm not interested in seeing uh, the state travel down. Well, you know, talking about this and, and, you know, such a strong racial element to this case, I, I just wanted to talk a little bit before I let you go just about the jury pool, because, uh, the jury makeup, I should say, because there were 18 jurors selected, 12, you know, seated as jurors, six of them alternates. But here's the breakdown, and it is predominantly black. Mm -hmm. You have 10 black women, two white women, three black men, three white men. As for the panel of 12, it includes seven black women, two black men, so that's um, nine black jurors, and then you have two white women and one white man. Mm -hmm. How do you think that's going to change not just the outcome, but even the way that the case is argued? It's going to be hard or harder to portray this as one of those situations where we have, in quotation marks, the Negro panic. So it's going to be hard to portray them as dangerous individuals when nine of those jurors can look at this person or look at the defendants and say, this could be my son, this could be my brother, this could be my cousin, mm-hmm. um, what have you. The statistic is one in three black men will be um, accosted by the police, arrested mm-hmm. in their lifetime. So there is a very high probability that nine of those jurors will be able to kind of feel where these defendants are coming from. This is not to say that the other three um, will be afraid of these jurors. Um, This is not to say that, you know, the white jurors will uh, automatically find them guilty. This is just one of those truthful situations in which there is a shared and a collective thing that African-Americans in the United States have gone through. And, you know, we automatically know how others feel about law enforcement. Many of us have had the talks with our children about what to do when police pull you over so you don't mm-hmm. uh, get stopped or get shot or anything like that. So I think that coming in and saying this is the reason that your children are uh, delinquent or having trouble in school or fighting or whatever, what have you, it's going to have to play very carefully from the state saying, okay, we understand that these may be people that you can relate to. However, they did dangerous crimes, and this is the mountain of evidence that we have to prove it. Whereas on the defendant side, they may be trying to 
come in a more emotional level and say, this is a person who came against all the odds, came from, you know, Cleveland Ave over in uh, Atlanta, and this person made it. This person is a big superstar. Are you really trying to send him to prison based on these lyrics? Mm-hmm. It, it's it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Well, thank you so much, Attorney Jamara Edward Ship, joining us. I hope to have you in when the trial actually starts, so we can we can watch it unfold together. I just want to thank our viewers also for joining us. Thank you, thank you for having me.